And if you would open your copy of the Scriptures to John chapter 3. Remember that we are right in the middle of a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And Jesus has been telling Nicodemus that uh, essentially, Nicodemus, you are unregenerate. You cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And he is trying to completely... Uh, destroy Nicodemus's self-confidence. Nicodemus, being a Pharisee, um, had more than enough self-confidence, uh, relying on his own righteousness, on his own religious standing. And so then Jesus comes to verse 16, a verse that uh, I would assume that all of you will have known from your youth. And so our text is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we have read this passage of Scripture, so I pray that You would open it up in our hearts, that You would be our teacher, in order that we might understand the full ramifications of the greatness of Your love. God, we all too often underestimate it. We often think of it as too small a thing. And then we have known this passage from our youth and familiarity can breed contempt. God, I ask that You would teach us afresh and anew about Your great love for us that caused You to send Jesus Christ to be our Savior. We pray in His name. Amen. Charles Spurgeon once told the gut-wrenching story of a family that was living in Germany uh, during a severe famine and the choices that were before these poor parents. And the story goes like this. Because of the famine, the family was reduced to absolute starvation. And the only possibility of preserving uh, the life of the family was to sell one of the children into slavery. And so the parents considered it. They had no other choice. They had to consider selling one of their children into slavery. The pinch of hunger had become so unbearable and their children pleading for bread tugged so so painfully at at their heartstrings that they had to consider this idea of selling one in order that they may save the lives of the rest. They had four sons. So who of the four sons should they sell? 
Well, it could not be the first. How could they spare their firstborn? And the secondborn was so strangely like his father in every way that he seemed a reproduction of him. So the mother said that she would never part with him. And the third child, well, he was a spitting image of his mother in so many ways. His personality and everything. Every time he looked at his, his third son, he was reminded of his wife. And he'd rather die than this dear boy go into to bondage. And, well, the fourth son, he was their darling. He was their Benjamin, uh, their baby. And so they could not part with him. And they concluded that it would be better for them all to die together than willingly part with any one of their children. Can you sympathize with them? I know that you can. And yet, and yet, God so loved us. To put it as strongly as I can, God so loved us that He seemed to love us better than His only Son. Because He did not spare His own Son in order that He might spare us. He permitted His Son to perish by the worst of deaths so that whoever believes in Him might not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16 is a celebration of God's love. Just to remind you of the context, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee who came to Jesus at night. And Jesus' main goal, as I mentioned before the sermon, was to get Nicodemus to understand how desperate his condition really was. Jesus wanted Nicodemus to understand that the regenerate person cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus wanted Nicodemus to understand that Nicodemus was an unregenerate person. That Nicodemus needed to be born again. And Jesus was intent on destroying Nicodemus' self-confidence. And so that was John 3, 1-15. through 15. We looked at it last week. And so here in John 3.16, Jesus directs all of Nicodemus' attention on the love of God. He wants Nicodemus to look away from his self-confidence and look to God and understand that his only hope is in the fact that God so loved him, that God so loves him. So in John 3.16, we see here the love of God. And the love, look where it is directed. Look where the love of God is directed. It's directed to the object of His love. What is the object of His love? For God so loved the world. God's, the object of God's love is focused on the world. So then the question for us is, what does He mean by the word world? 
I am a Calvinistic theologian. I would call myself a Reformed theologian. I know many of you would eagerly place yourself in that same camp. So, um, please understand, it is with some confusion um, that I found that there are many Reformed and, and Calvinistic commentators that seem afraid of this word world. For instance, A.W. Pink, one of my heroes, uh, I cut my Reformed teeth on A.W. Pink. And you've heard me say many times, I uh, recommend to you the, the small little book, The Attributes of God, and how that changed my life so powerfully. Because I, through reading that book, learned that God was God, and I certainly was not. But it was surprising and a bit confusing to me to read A.W. Pink on this passage. And he says this word world means the world of the elect. This makes no sense to me, frankly. Uh, what is the world of the elect? Um, secondly, there's no evidence that this word world, as Jesus is using it here, uh, in the context of, of Him speaking to Nicodemus, that Jesus means the world of the elect. So I just have no idea um, what A.W. Pink is trying to say here. I understand why he's saying it, but it, it makes um, very little sense to me. There are other Calvinists or Reformed commentators that say that Jesus means the world of both the Jews and the Gentiles. It makes no sense to me what that means. Or uh, There are others who, and it, this makes a little more sense to me when they'll say that Jesus is a worldwide Savior. But that's still not what Jesus means. Jesus, here in John 3.16, is the, the emphasis here is magnifying God's love. He wants Nicodemus to understand just how great God's love is. And by simply talking about the world of the elect or the worldwide Savior or a Savior for both Jews and Gentiles, it doesn't really capture for us the greatness of God's love. Well now, of course... Most people don't have that struggle because they think it, the word world means something altogether different. Most people believe that Jesus means, by using the word world, He means every individual human being that's ever lived. But this view also has serious problems as well. First of all, there's this guy named Esau in Romans chapter 9. You remember him? Uh, before he was born, before he had done anything good or bad, God said, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Uh, so there's this guy named Esau. But then there's a bigger problem with understanding this word world to mean every individual be human being that's ever lived. Again, in John 3.16, Jesus is wanting Nicodemus to understand the true extent of God's love. But to measure God's love by the sum of 
of all the people who have ever lived uh, on the earth is by necessity to say that God's love is finite. There's a myth out there, and um, maybe a, our scientists may may uh, correct me that maybe it's not a myth, but there's a myth out there that says that only 8 billion people have ever lived since the beginning of the earth. Um, the reason I say it's a myth is I read a Scientific American article that persuaded me that there have been at least 106 billion people who have ever lived on earth since its creation. That's a large number. 106 billion. The thing is, it's still finite. I'm convinced that Jesus is not using the word world in a numerical or quantitative sense. In other words, Jesus is not simply saying God so, lo- God so loves so many people that He gave His only begotten Son. I think it means something entirely different. So then the question is, what does it mean? I'll get to it in a few moments. First, however, I want you to understand the genuineness of God's love. Because there is much in our culture that poses for love that is not really love at all. For instance, many people say that when they are in love, or many many people will say that they are in love when in reality they are seeking a relationship to gratify their own pleasure and their own their own gratifications. Um, that's not love at all. No matter how strong the emotions are, oh, I so love her, I so love him. If it's only emotional, uh, but your goal is really your own pleasure, your own self-gratification, that is not love. And a lot of people basing relationships on something that is not love at all. So the question is, what is genuine love? Well, listen to how the Bible defines genuine love in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. This definition of love does not define love primarily as an emotion or an emotional attachment. It defines love as an action toward the other person. Uh, Love is patient and kind toward the other person. Love does not insist on its own way or its own rights. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things for the other person's benefit. So, let's pause right now. We've been looking at God's love, but I think it uh, it behooves us to pause and look at our own love. How does your love measure up to biblical love?
husbands? In light of this definition from 1 Corinthians 13, how does your love measure up for your wives? Wives, are you loving your husbands? Does it measure up to true love? Children, are you loving your parents? And we could go on and on. Are you loving your neighbors? We can go to uh, Matthew chapter 5. Are you loving your enemies? Are you bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things for your enemies? This I hope you will see as we are looking at genuine love, that God's love measures up. Um, But God's love is a genuine desire for and delight in our good. That God's love is unselfish. That God's love is self-giving. God's love is genuine. His love easily passes the test. God so loves and He so desires for and delights in our good that He very unselfishly gave His one and only Son, His only begotten Son, in our behalf. And He gave His Son in great cost to Himself. The cost He incurred incurred upon Himself to provide for our good proves how genuine, how sincere, and how true His love for us really is. And I mention this because when life gets difficult, too often our first reaction is to question God's love, quickly followed by questioning His faithfulness toward His promises. But listen to the cost that God incurred upon Himself to provide for our good, to provide for our salvation. God was under no obligation to save us from our sins. He could have destroyed us as easily as we destroy a fire ant mound. And when I grew up in the south, out in the country, we had a lot of fire ant mounds. And uh, with great earnestness, we would uh, destroy those mounds so that we would not fall in them as we were outside playing. Or as a parent in South Carolina, when there would be a fire ant mound, we'd go out and I would seek them out and, and, uh, and try and destroy all the fire ants as eagerly as I could so that my children would not uh, step in them by accident. And God could have just as easily had destroyed us because of our sins. But instead, He sent His Son to bear the brunt of His justice. See, our sins must be punished and judged according to God's perfect justice. For God to simply overlook any of our sins, even the slightest sin, would be antithetical or the opposite of who God is. It would mean that God would be an accomplice in our sin if He simply overlooked it and did not punish it. 
In other words, if God did not send Jesus Christ to bear the full penalty of our sins, it would be impossible for any of us to ever be saved. Salvation would be an impossibility. But God did send His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world. And He sent Him with the express purpose. It wasn't a plan B. Oops, the, 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 uh, the Jews have rejected me. They're sending me to the cross while I'm going to the cross. I might as well die for people's sins. No. It was His express purpose in sending Jesus here into the world. And it was Jesus' express purpose in coming. He said He came to seek and to save the lost. He came, or He was chosen before the creation of the world, First uh, Peter 1.20, to be the Lamb of God. Before the creation of the world, Christ was chosen to be the sacrifice for our sins. And so it was God's express purpose to send Jesus into the world to die for us. be the sacrificial offering in our place. And when Christ was on the cross, God punished Christ in our place. God treated Christ while He was on the cross as we deserve to be treated by God on the day of judgment. The Bible says that God the Father struck Jesus Christ that He poured out an eternity of righteous wrath on His one and only Son. And why did He do it? He did it for us. God's love is genuine. We've seen the object of God's love, which is the world. We've seen the genuineness of God's love that He gave His Son for us but we've yet to fully understand the greatness of God's love. The greatness of God's love, as I've already said, is not defined by the the number of individuals in which He loves. Uh, The Apostle John in his Gospel and also in his epistles uses the word world consistently in an ethical sense or in a qualitative sense rather than in a numerical or or a quantitative sense. (coughs) So for instance... In John 15, verses 18 through 19, listen to how Jesus uses the word world. He says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world... Well, now, wait a minute. These twelve disciples, where were they? Were they levitated above the world? Were they up in the clouds? Where were they? Well, they were in the world. But he's saying you're not in the world. You're not of the world. Because he's using the word world in an ethical sense. So you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Or, in 1 John 2, 15-17, uh, let me ask you this first before I, before I read this passage. Are you to love your neighbor? Yes? No? Yes, of course you are to love your neighbor. Are you to love your enemy? Yes, of course. But yet, you're not to love the world. So, 
1 John 2, 15-17 Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and so here he's defining, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from, but is from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So just to make this crystal clear, we are to love our neighbors, even our enemies. We are to love everybody in the world, but we're not to love the world because here in 1 John 2, 15-17, God um, is speaking of world in an ethical sense. He is speaking of the world as that, uh, as the system that is opposed to God. He's speaking of the world as a kingdom of darkness. Um, and so the word world is another word for all that is evil. And so when, when John is saying in chapter in 1 John 2.15, do not love the world, he's saying do not love that which is evil. Um, he's saying that the world and God's righteousness are exact opposites. Uh, so, B.B. Warfield said, The world is just the synonym of all that is evil and noisome and disgusting. There is nothing in it that can attract God's love. Nay, that can justify the love of any good man. God and the world are precise opposites. But herein, we see the greatness of God's love. Because Jesus is telling Nicodemus that God so loved, when He says the world, we could put in these words, God so loved that which was the opposite of His holiness and righteousness that He gave His only begotten Son. Or God so loved that which was evil that He gave His only begotten Son. Or God so loved the world that so hated Him that He gave His only begotten Son. See, God's love is not measured by the number of people in the world or who have ever lived in the world or will live in the world. God's love is measured by the fact that a holy God would love sinners. Now people have this idea that it is only good people that God loves. Which is the exact opposite of what the Bible really says. There is nothing in any of us that could ever attract God to us. There is nothing in us, even a smidgen of righteousness, that would cause God to be pleased with us. There is nothing in me, there is nothing in you, there would never ever be anything in you except what, of course, God has produced in you that could be called good. So then, why did God love us? Simply because He chose to. But can you understand 
the greatness of His love that He has lavished on you in Jesus Christ? It's not because of anything you've done, not because of anything you could do. Simply because God is gracious and He so loved sinners that He gave His only begotten Son. He so loved you in spite of your character rather than because of your character. God's love for you is a free gift because there's nothing you could ever do to earn it. Nothing you could ever do to deserve it. And if you reject God, you are rejecting and throwing away the best love that you will ever be offered because He so loved you that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for sinners. As we draw to the close, flee to Jesus Christ. Hide underneath His wings. He took the blow of God's justice for sinners. Will you flee to Him right now? Let's pray. Almighty God, I I think back to the beginning of the sermon. I don't have four sons, but I have four children. Which one would I sell in slavery? I wouldn't be able to sell any of them. But You loved us so much that You gave Your only begotten Son to suffer a punishment and pay a penalty that it would have taken us an eternity to pay. All because You loved us. Father, I pray that You would banish every thought of self-righteousness from us. Every thought that we could have recommended ourselves to You, that we ever could recommend ourselves to You. And help us to rest in and rest upon Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.